Do you want to get into it since this is a hefty <laughs> question in a long episode? We don't need the pleasantries. Sure. I see you every day. <laughs> <laughs> we had we had all our pleasantries this morning. <laughs> Over toast. <laughs> Talking about dump truck asses. <laughs> Beefy men. Beefy, you know. Just normal morning talk. <laughs> Anyways. So our question for this week says, Hi, so this isn't really a question, but rather a topic I've been thinking about and would love to hear your thoughts on. Like, it's just so crazy to me how in young girls' friendships, so much more touching and cuddling happens, whereas boys are taught from a young age how that isn't masculine and therefore wrong for them to express their feelings towards each other in that way. Could that also be why boys love contact sports like wrestling so much? Also, if you think about how most men glorify war movies, it just gives off the impression that men can only show their emotions towards each other in times of trauma because... Because they're like the only movies that show real connection between men that isn't sexual. Because also I think homophobia plays a big role into this too, since they don't want to be seen as gay, which is messed up on its own. The fact is we just need more representation of healthy male friendships. Please just let them show their feelings towards each other and treat each other like humans. Anyway, sorry for the rant. I love your podcast, XOXO. Well, listener. Here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. I think that there's there's two main like social theories that are at the root of this. Mm. And um as we know boys and girls are not born differently. They're not in terms of like um traits. Right. Right? Like social traits, like you know, the capacity to show and receive affection yeah those kind of gendered things are all a construct just like the same concept of gender is exactly so that means that the discrepancy between girls and boys in this realm is through socialization and because of that there are two theories that are in play and the first one is simply that we live in um, a world where there's a maintenance of toxic masculinity. Um, uh, Sharon Bird, who is a theorist, calls it hegemonic masculinity, where there's a maintenance of those practices that uh, institutionalize in a patriarchy. Um, and, and these aspects of hegemonic masculinity, toxic masculinity are maintained through, um, social groups of the same sex. So Mm -hmm. groups of men, groups of women. And in turn, that shapes how we view femininity, how we view masculinity. So the first part that comes into play with this is like the three practices that are a part of hegemonic masculinity or this is what Sharon Bird theorizes are the three main components of it and the first one is literally emotional detachment and so she theorizes that that is a key component of hegemonic masculinity Um, and in turn like just masculinity in the way that we've taught it and and the way that it's been learned Um, So that's the first one. The second one is competitiveness. The third one is the sexual objectification of women. So it's like the maintenance of all of these things that institutionalize men's dominance over women. 
and in turn are a facet of of our concept of masculinity Mm -hmm. the second issue is that which i think is like the main issue is that when we're um becoming self-aware it's through a process of detachment that's simone de beauvoir's like whole thing and she talks about it in the second sex oh i talked about her in my thesis yeah yeah she's cool as we are becoming self-aware that happens through a process of detachment the first detachment obviously being an infant from its mother Mm -hmm. um as it becomes more self-aware and forms an identity um in the world and so um in t- that coupled with the fact that the recognition of masculinity as a foundation in this in a patriarchy like maleness being the um like the neutral or like the starting point um requires the process of an othering mm. simply because it's like a it's a privileged group it's a dominant group and so similar to like the global north or like westernized society the way that we talk about a lot of things like in order for us to have an identity as a developed nation there needs to be an othering of developing nations in the global south and all that um and so in establishing masculinity in the way that we have it inherently becomes anti-female um so masculinity instead of being defined by like um, external and like lone characteristics of like just what it means to be a man um, or, or what it means to embody some form of masculinity it becomes defined as not being like a woman or not being feminine mm. you know what I mean yeah. with that detachment with that othering comes whether it's conscious or unconscious but it a, reg- a recognition nonetheless that we're better for it. Mm-hmm. So it creates like an othering. And in that, um, a sense of pride of who you are and, and, and how you present yourself. And that only can happen if you view the other as othered or ne- and negative in this, in this case. Mm-hmm. Cause when we other something, that's, um, that's what happens. Yeah. And so, anti-femininity and anti-traditionally female traits becomes important to male identity formation Mm. no it's really interesting because i was reading an article in um the atlantic today about the miseducation of young men and it was um this woman who wrote the article interviewed a bunch of um high school seniors like across the country um, and was like gathering data, asking them about masculinity and how they see gender and um, versus sex and, um, and masculinity and femininity and all of those things. Um, and she said that in comparison to data taken in like the fifties, um, the way that there's, they see women or people of other genders um, as as their counterparts and as capable of being complex and not being pigeonholed um, to certain roles and um, characteristics was way more progressive, but the way that they still saw themselves reverts back almost um, identical, almost, um, what's the word for, 
like reverts back to almost a carbon copy of the the 50s stereotypes and so that kind of dichotomy is why like there's not been an eradication of toxic masculinity because that self-image hasn't been changed and yeah so, and it's in it and it limits men which is so it's like we talk a lot about how the patriarchy isn't beneficial for anybody because it's like they talk um the i read the one of the guys that she interviewed was talking about how um we're talking about how like femininity the way that he described it embodied tons of things he was like yeah girls can be good in math and science and like that's still that can still be feminine or they can be good in the arts like it can embody all of these things but masculinity didn't have that same kind of leeway it still had to be very strong and aggressive and with an emphasis in size and um, like in, in power. Um, And I think it's interesting because it's like, that is, I think that so often, like even within feminism and just within activism, it's like, and with um, uh, equality of the sexes, it's like so many people look at it as a one-sided thing and bringing women up to men's standard or or recognizing yeah. like Gloria Steinem said something so smart in an interview I watched the other day which was that we've are we've we've progressed to a point where we've recognized and accepted the fact that women can do what men do now we have to work on getting people to realize that men can do what women can do what yeah. women can do yeah um and I don't think that that like reversal is, is, is pop is common thought. Um, and I think too, it's interesting because like, it's so what's, what's so interesting is the difference in um, the, the culture of groups of women and groups of men. And like, I talk about this often um, or I, I, with, with my aunt, because she was a part of a woman's only club, um, in New York. And we were just talking about it. Cause I was like, that's such an incredible space, but I don't necessarily think that there should be men only men's only club or men only right. clubs. Yeah. And I do think that it is because of the culture that is bred in those spaces. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it is um, like when women, when women group together, when there are women only clubs, it's for safety. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, it's, it's a, it's a place where the traditional um, fears that are rooted in male dominance are aren't aren't present. Yeah. Whereas I think with like male men, how why am I? Why does that sound wrong? It sounds fine. Men only. Only men. Only so men's specifically only, only fans. Only uh, only man's only. Only, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, only male spaces. Yeah, men. like. <laughs> It sounds wrong because it's not supposed to exist. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but in those spaces, it's like these very toxic forms of of male dominance, of um, anti-femininity, mm-hmm. um, of like forms that are of – and this isn't to say that it's just bad for women. It's also bad for the men involved in them. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's what breeds there. And I think that that – that kind of is a good 
transition because I think that Marilyn Fry talks about it often, but she basically talks about how like homoeroticism is inherently is inherent to masculinity. Like that yeah. is those two things go hand in hand because in viewing um, anti-femininity as your entire personality and your entire self-identity, um, all that leaves is men. So it's like men look up to other men. Mm-hmm. It only leaves men to admire, men to engage with, to share feelings with, to idolize, like yeah. to look to who they want to emulate and who they revere and who they respect. And so that goes back to the question, which is just like those behaviors um, where that are traditional, traditionally, why can I not say that word this episode? <laughs> traditionally female can only exist in hyper masculine spaces to be acceptable so like in locker rooms in war like during war in contact sport um because if you take away the hyper masculinity of those activities and of those spaces it becomes female according to this this this, line of thought yeah Yeah. and and therefore it becomes negative and it becomes weak and so you begin to engage in the exact space that you framed your entire social identity against and the pride that comes with masculinity and it's othering of femininity disappears. Yeah. And so I know we, you and I were talking about the um, Gillette ad that came out a couple of years ago, which like um, I was still in school when that came out and I went to school for journalism. So we talked about that a lot. Yeah, I bet. Um, and it was just like i think it goes back to the whole thing of like your trauma isn't your fault but your healing is your responsibility which is Mm -hmm. to say that the fact that men have been socialized to find pride in in uh, in in things that are not female isn't their fault right like your socialization how you've been socialized isn't your fault yeah it's it's a mass scale like there's so much to blame for that and so it's understandable especially when there's pride rooted in that why why an advertisement targeting like all you've known and what you've made what you've based your entire identity around would be a little jarring and like you would take that personally but that doesn't change the fact that it's wrong and trying to undo that and unlearn that is absolutely your responsibility. Yeah. I fully agree. And it's like, and it's interesting what the difference in the stakes for each group, because like in the Atlanta article I was reading, um, she was talking to one of the kids and he was saying that in in the locker room nobody's surprised there's like a lot of really negative and problematic um talk about women and girls and Mm -hmm. um and in their sex lives and and all of that um and that in the beginning he would speak up and then um him and his friend would speak up and be like hey like don't talk like that like that's not cool yeah um and and then it happened again and it happened again. And then the last time, like just his friend stood up and he didn't say anything because he realized that it was spending his social currency and he didn't know what would happen if that was all spent. 
Yeah. Like, and because you don't have the confidence that anybody's going to stand up with you. And it's like, right, I get that that could be really scary. Like, you don't want to spend your social currency in an environment where, like, that's the accepted behavior. What do you do if suddenly you're the one who's othered? Yeah. And exactly. it's like, well, but, but then you have to realize that that fear comes from because you know how bad it is for the other part, for the othered party. Exactly. It's like, you know, when they've said like in rooms, like raise like a group of white people, it's like raise your hand if you would want to yes. be treated like a black person and nobody raises their hand because everybody truly knows how bad it is. That's it's like, that's the same thing. Yeah. Jane Elliott is like, she, I don't even know if it would be legal now what she did ethics wise, but, mm-hmm. um, she she was she was the head of some pretty serious like race studies really in, like the 90s yeah oh i didn't know yeah she's really cool um but it's like that so it's like you have to realize that the stakes are that you might be a social outcast but the stakes for other people are literally their lives yeah like people are murdered because of their blackness because of their queerness because of their female like the people are literally die because of those things yep um and so being it so i think putting that into perspective for kids it's like i i say that like i say that like i, I because for me putting things into perspectives helps that that's how i process and understand things um but then i know that like if i bring up like with um people in my family about like privilege it becomes an immediate like trigger to be completely defensive and unresponsive for the rest of the conversation so i'm not really sure the correct way to go about discussing that but but it also goes back to the fact that it's like i think the issue is that these these um discussions are tied to our entire identity yeah so it's like that kid is talking about his like social status or whatever his social currency but it's like what he's failing to realize is that it's like from the outside it makes sense because it's not an excuse but it makes sense because it's like that is his whole identity mm-hmm. like like I, it's it's more than um i think that it's it's it shouldn't be but it is more than like perspective because it's like these things foster in groups of of boys and in groups of men because it's like that is the time when they are trying to figure out who they are and so all of that is learned all of that is external yeah so it's like that's the space it's like what do you do when all of a sudden your entire identity is uprooted and you're you're forced to completely reevaluate that of course that's scary it's necessary Mm-hmm. But like, of course, it's scary, especially when like the environments aren't conducive to it, and there's no and there's no representation or very little representation of that, which I think yeah. is like what we're kind of coming into now is like working on or having some representation of healthy male friendships mm-hmm. of of like men experiencing emotions and showing their like affection. It's like i made a tiktok when i was really high and i didn't post it but i was like like everyone realizes that deconstructing the patriarchy is like good for everybody like all you chads don't have to be going around punching drywalls like life can be different you don't have to like be so bottled up and angry and upset all the time like you can experience comfort and emotional release and like that's okay yeah and necessary i think it's interesting because it it's harmful in um it's harmful in so many ways and it 
I was thinking about how when I was younger, I was, my best friend was a boy growing up for a really long time. And it was like, we were very affectionate and we were, I, I treated him and he treated me like we treated our other female friends and like my, our other female friends treated us. But then when he would go into a group of boys, like he would completely, his entire identity and personality would change. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then also that was when we were really young. As we got older, there was a, there was an effort to separate us and make us less, less affectionate towards each other because we were being sexualized by grown adults. Mm -hmm. And that just, that simply happened because we happened to be male and female and heteronormativity. But I think when that happens between um, two boys at a much younger age, um, it is because of homophobia, just to get back to the question, like, mm -hmm. It absolutely is because of homophobia, but it's it's mostly rooted in the um, lack of one of the tenets of hegemonic masculinity, and that's the sexual objectification of women. Because mm -hmm. in a relationship between two men, that doesn't exist. And we're talking about, that's not to say that gay men can't sexualize women, that queer women can't sexual. That's not to say that that is, that that's, the reality but it is traditionally that is the yeah. one thing lacking within um a relationship between two men and so because gay men are in an intimate relationship with an with um with each other they share intimacies and emotions and love and basic romantic characteristics and so for um heterosexual men that doesn't those traits don't become simply a facet of love or intimacy but it's marked as non-masculine because the traits that they're expressing and the behaviors that they're engaging in are traditionally female traits outside of romantic outside of romantic relationships and so this impacts not only how men engage with their personal sense of masculinity, which we've been talking about, and with each other as friends, but it also impacts how they enter into romantic relationships with women, yeah. which is like, so that is the thing that I find most troubling is like, mm -hmm. we've, we've conditioned men um, to be so um, intimacy adverse that even in entering into relationships with women um they 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 feel as though they can't engage in that yeah just bad for everyone yeah exactly because it makes them repressed it it and it fucks with the the other person in the relationship like it's just fucked all around and it's like it's so stupid how there's like that stereotype of like a woman always trying to tie a man down and get him to commit men never want to commit it's like it all is toxic masculinity it's all and it all sexism. starts from such a young age and it starts so young like i had a best friend when i was little um who was a boy 
and we were friends from when I was like four to probably about eight and then I remember he came to my eighth birthday party and like wouldn't come in because he had four older brothers um and I was like waiting for him to come in I didn't know why and I was looking out the window and his his brothers were bullying him for going to a girl's birthday party and so he was like so upset and he wouldn't come in and he didn't and I literally never spoke to him again after that like we never That's hung out so again tragic and I was just like why won't he come to my that's my best friend why won't he come to my birthday um because it was a girl's party and and then we literally never spoke and it's like and we were eight like that's already that ingrained at eight years old it's just depressing because it was because of his older brothers that he was forced to question that aspect of himself Mm -hmm. there's a reason why male suicide rates are higher than female suicide rates yeah i was gonna bring that up and um it's just it's just so it's so hard because it's like it's for men's benefit and it requires the the the, like shift in this is for men's benefits for everyone but it's also the, the the most important thing is that it is literally for men's for men and it requires men for the shift to happen and yet men are their own worst enemies. <laughs> yeah, literally. And each other's worst enemies. It's like, it's just massive self-harm on like a monumental scale. Um, and of course, like that happens in feminism as well. Like that happens oh yeah. with women. But but there is that recognition of like, that's like, I think we talk about this all the time, which is just like, that's an internalized misogyny that um, that is on this on a scale much more um much more digestible than yeah. what the um mass issue of feminine the 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 larger issues of feminism are trying to um exactly. approach i mean it's like toxic toxic masculinity breeds within cis men but it's like exactly. it, it, it's not because it's it's human nature to want to to want to adapt to survive that internalized misogyny and internalized toxic masculinity that's a survival mechanism so of course people start like women and um trans people and like people of all identities start to embody that because it's identifying with the source of power as a form of survival it makes sense so it's like to be misogynistic is not um gender-based anybody can be yeah um but i think what's interesting is that like all of these issues of toxic masculinity um and like emotional repression and all of the and all of those things are rooted within the construct of gender so like the gender construct is what's completely fucked us over totally which is unfortunate because um because gender is such a fundamental Um, form of expression for so many people so it's like on the one hand um a dismantling of the binary is necessary but i don't think that a dismantling of gender is desired you know because that expression is so um is so important to so many people because now it's become important like you know like it's i don't because it was constructed so now there's like a reclaiming that can happen and that can and that can be super powerful i think yeah that's that's what i'm saying there's a lot of discourse like within trans feminism because it's like feminism 
um, requires that we acknowledge male and female and so does trans feminism but then um, there's also the um, desire within feminism to break down that binary but then if we break down that binary what does it mean for to transition from male to female or female to male like then then what yeah. then what, what difference does it make yeah. you know mm-hmm. so that's that's the point that i'm saying which is just that like like gendered markers whether that's male female yeah. non-binary like how that's a part of someone's expression and so mm-hmm. i think it's going to be like how do we eradicate the most toxic um and damaging forms of of that and and eliminate that binary and make it yeah and make it adaptable for I think it, it, I feel like right now, because gender has become a construct, it has control over us. And I think mm, that we need to get we, to a point where like we have control over it and it becomes for us. That's a and really it good point. And it doesn't like delineate like roles or yeah. traits or anything like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that like, I think it's like not deconstructing gender as a construct completely, but deconstructing the gender binary and more like exactly. accepting a spectrum. The roles that are attached to it, yeah. um, the traits that, that one assumes based on how one identifies that, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's just, there's so many, it's like so interesting because all of these questions like at the, at the, are about one thing, like, like you asked about, um, simply male friendships but it goes so much deeper because all like toxic masculinity is rooted in all of these other issues and um connects to even more so it's it's complex but um thank you for asking and it's i think it's been i i get a lot out of just having these conversations um that i think can be rehashed over and over so um i hope that was enjoyable to listen to and thank you for asking because that made my brain feel good yeah should we get into the episode? Yeah, let's get into the episode. <laughs> okay, so this is <laughs> Nisei. Nisei. That's what Google told me. So if I'm wrong, nobody come for me. It's Google's fault. I don't understand this show's need to. I know we've talked about this, but like, I don't get this show's need to like put titles in different languages because it's like it's not actually it's not actually meaningful in any way. It's just no, like, it, episode- it, it has the energy of like a white girl who gets like, like something written it- on her body on a tattoo in a language that she doesn't speak. I'm yeah. sorry. No, it does. Well, and this like episode totally demonizes Japanese people. So like, why are you putting the title in Japanese? 100%. Oops. So anyways, it's some episode in season three. I don't know, but the word means second generation. I'm not even going to try to guess because I'm not feeling confident. So we open on next. What number it is? Yeah. (laughs) I think it's, I want to know. I think it's eight. I trust you. Oh, it's nine. Fuck. So we open in Knoxville, Tennessee. This this is a two-parter. Lots of mythology happening. So there's a train car. It's been left at a station. There's some ominous music playing while we get like a full body shot of this train car. The camera is getting all of its angles. The camera is getting all of his angles. And I said his because we're no longer referring to inanimate objects as female. (laughs) Because even though that happens later, 
we're recreating. Wow, I never thought about how like deeply ingrained into objectification that is that we view most inanimate objects like boats and cars as female. Oh shit. Mulder and the um whoever is at the Coast Guard later start talking about ships as her and she. Well, I know that that's like very traditional and like what the Navy has done and stuff. And it's like, I used to think that that was honoring women, but it's absolutely not. It's really funny because conservatives who are in other people who are like, I would never, people who have pronouns in their bios, like, no, I don't want to be associated with people who have pronouns. It's like, bitch, you're literally giving inanimate objects pronouns. That's how, that's how you far fuck your our truck. pronouns like, what? Yeah, literally. We see a group of Japanese doctors performing some surgery on something in this train car. There's some green, like, acid juice. Olive oil. Olive oil <laughs> in a container. Um, the whole thing's being recorded. Some men suddenly come in in full unidentified military gear and they kill them and they take the alien that they were operating on. I, like, I wish they would have never shown us what these aliens look like, you know? Like, they show you so early from the beginning, and it's, like, so not creative. Like, why do they make them look like the stereotypical fairy tale-like story? Aliens aren't fairy tales, but you know what I mean. <laughs> there are if you're Fox Mulder. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? Like, they make them yeah. look so stereotypical. Like, cartoonish. Yeah. And I'm like why you could have gotten so creative with that one and two like i feel like it would have been more ominous if like you just didn't show what they looked like because then it's like we see this but is that true like do what the fuck are these things then you can't show us an alien like in the first scene of an episode and then later go on to prove that like actually aliens were never real and it's just the gut like you like there's gonna be no mystery when i've seen it yes very they go back and forth was the same thing with like with samantha it's the same thing with Mulder's sister i know they shouldn't have even shown us her i don't think yeah it's like they show they show us an alien and then they're like no but that was actually just a person in an alien suit but like they were actually operating on them and they had weird insides but it wasn't really an alien it was actually just a human in a zip-up alien costume but but there were actual but there were organs but also a zipper but also, like, aliens that look like this actually do exist. It's just not, it just happens to not be this one. Like, a UFO came, but, like, maybe it was a military plane. Yeah. But, like, also it was a UFO. Yeah. Like, they just... <laughs> well, it's just... I feel gaslit and girl-bossed and gatekeeped. <laughs> so, after the opening credit, um, <laughs> you were so kind to point out to me that Scully comes into the office feral, yeah. like at 100 she's surprised to see Mulder's not watching porn on the tv (laughs) on the roll away tv she makes a joke about him watching porn looks at him licks her lips while she sits on his desk like damn you go girl get that dick before 8 a.m it's so interesting to see her be very flirtatious or just very confident i don't know what it is she's like just very i don't know something she has like a zhuzh you know she feels like she's feeling herself yeah, and him just completely just be so overwhelmed and, like, not know what to do. And so he just, like, smiles really stupidly. And then, like, later on, when he acts that way towards her, it's like it's like she is, like, ready for it. But, like, she neither of them do anything about it. I know. 
it's like that dynamic is so funny to watch i'm like god anyway. stop edging in public ma'am Mulder's watching an alien autopsy he spent 30 dollars plus shipping on do you think that like when they were living together and i want to believe that like finances were an argument and she's like you need to stop ordering random alien autopsy tapes off the internet 100 percent. we can't pay our bills and he's like mm. her saying you spent money for this like i fully think that she at some point later down the line said that more often than talent that then she told him that she loved him oh i agree <laughs> um that's just them you know so scully of course is like you're an idiot for spending money on this but also i love you deeply for being so pure <laughs> and hopeful and for always giving me another opportunity to prove you wrong you know because yeah. it's like she's like yeah you're an idiot but also like i like this back and forth that we have that that these things spark that's so a- keep wasting your money their love language is you're an idiot but yep that's it so they're looking at the footage they're analyzing it together so Kelly says that the green juice the doctors are extracting could be olive oil <laughs> and it's just nice to see her humbled like maybe <laughs> she's wrong sometimes it's rare but you know he's like what are you cooking with scully but like also he doesn't cook so maybe that's why he was just like oh yeah <laughs> maybe it is olive oil both of them are gonna fucking if either of them tried to cook something they'd both die <laughs> that's funny to imagine although it's my head canon that scully has like one rest like she has like one recipe and it's like maggie's something that maggie taught her how to make mm. and like that's her thing i feel like homegirl can make a good salad like maybe like one that she has every day totally. for lunch for like three years yeah fully but it's like i feel like it's because she used to get this salad from a restaurant but then that restaurant closed but she had it for so long that she was just like you know what i can make this at home so scully thinks that the lack of detail in the video proves that it's fake Mueller disagrees with her he suggests that how little it shows and because of how it ends with the guys coming in and shooting them is actually what makes it real he says that some guy in allentown pennsylvania was selling them so that's where they go next so they're at the dude's house the one who sold them or sold them yeah no sold molder the video um the back door has been busted open scully says that the front is all boarded up it's all very suspect um they go in and explore and to no one's surprised he's dead but very clearly recently dead because scully says that he's still warm that's disgusting so as they're looking around in the house um someone runs out of the back with a briefcase Mulder chases him he gets the shit beat out of him but then somehow Mulder has two guns i don't i wrote mr two gun how sexy yeah (laughs) he's like um, you know what i lose my gun a lot i should invest (laughs) in another seriously um that would be a really fun little thing i don't know how this manifests my brain power is very lackluster today (laughs) but someone can take this and run with it if they'd like which is the idea that i don't remember where he pulled this gun out from his sock okay that's what i thought that's what i thought it would be really fun to 
think that Scully finds out that Mulder has like two guns, right? And so she's like, I'm going to get myself a gun. And oh he's God. like, where are you going to put it? Like, there's no, you don't have, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a whole thing. And then she ends up getting like something that goes around her thigh yeah. and she puts it in there. And then at some point she pulls it out and he's like, babe, we almost lost the killer because you pulled that out from there. <laughs> so Mulder corners him. This man doesn't speak English. So Mulder just gets the briefcase from him and arrests him. Uh, back at the police station, while Mulder and Scully are waiting for an interpreter, Scully looks heavenly. I know I talk about her lips every episode, but whoever lined her lips in this episode, <laughs> they went like a little bit higher on her right side, on her upper lip. And it's, I know that they probably did that because Jillian's lips are uneven, which annoys me, but it gives her this like very like, you know, like when you first wake up and you're like, what annoys like- you? that they they lined like higher than they normally do oh to try to even it out yeah oh i understand but it it gives her this very like you know like when you first wake up like a morning pout you know like when your lips are all swollen and Mm -hmm. that's what it gives her a morning pout yeah that's really cute my only note from this scene was who the fuck went overboard on the fog machine in this field office. They said we're going to smoke up the whole thing. It looks like the building is on fire when she's walking through the hallway. Like, what the fuck? That's such a good point. I didn't even realize that. The lighting in this episode is very um, not great. No, they said we're only going to backlight, Scully. Yeah, it's like the lighting is all over the place the camera lens was dirty like there was something <laughs> happening someone got their sticky fingers all over the grimy ass hands um anyways she looks beautiful skinner shows up and tells them he's releasing the man they arrested um sakurai is his name because he's a high-ranking diplomat and apparently rich powerful people can't be arrested or commit crimes mm-hmm. or at least can't be held accountable for crimes that they may or may not have committed yeah <laughs> so something super suspect is happening skinner tells them to go home but that's okay because skelly can look just as gorgeous from home and that's what's most important here and that's what's most important she's multi-talented so skelly says that there's something fishy here, right? In the next scene. Her and Mulder are walking to their car. She's like, what is a diplomat doing in the same house as a dead man with his head stuffed in a pillowcase? This exchange that happens next is the epitome of Scully falling in love with Mulder, I believe. Like, if you took this, this is the timestamp, okay? Okay. So she says, what do you want to do? Do you just want to, like, are we just going to drop it? And Mulder goes... Scully, no, I'm not wasting the twenty nine ninety five I spent. And Scully's just like, it's true. And I feel like this is the Mulder and Scully I love. Like, fuck that last episode with like her being Seriously. completely against him. Like them working together against the man and the two. And it's like just the two of them against the world. Like, that's some sexy shit. Because it goes back to that like original issue with some of the plot, which is that they make Mulder like this lone 
this lone ranger mm -hmm. who's involved in the conspiracy making scully the only outsider yeah aside from her trauma that has tied her to the conspiracy but like that's why this works is because it's like Mulder is truly working from the outside next to Scully and Scully next to him as opposed to him like being involved and yeah it's stupid no one's interested in that as a, it's as a pawn everyone loves an underdog and everyone especially loves a sexy underdog duo true um I just saw a note that I had about the last scene um where Skinner comes in and okay. I said I said um Skinner has the perfectly shaped head like, he was born to be bald. I feel like Mulder's head would be lumpy and Scully's would be top-heavy, but Skinner, perfectly round. <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. It's like, I don't really... Does Skinner have, like, anything here, like, on the sides? Yeah, he has it on the sides. Okay, that's what I thought. But I, like, don't see him as... You're, you're... That's so correct. His head is perfectly shaped. I don't shaped. see him as bald. No. Yeah, wow. Bald suits him. Mulder remembers they get to the car. He remembers that he forgot mm -hmm. to turn in the briefcase. Um, it has a it has satellite photographs and a list of mutual UFO network members in the greater Allentown area in it. The name Scully's looking at that list and the name Betsy Hagopian, which is very fun to say, <laughs> is circled. Um, Mulder says maybe he was going to maybe this dude that they arrested was going to fit her for a pillowcase too scully's like i wish you would fit me for a pillowcase <laughs> anyway so scully goes to get a motel Mulder goes back to dc like the good boy he is okay. according to him Jesus christ he goes to see the lone gunman he shows them the satellite images i really, you I really like frohickey's fringe vest <laughs> So do I. I was thinking the same like, thing. Honestly, these boys are kind of fashion icons. Um, does the normal one ever get tired of wearing suits? Like, I feel like it's hot in there. Buyers? Like, yeah. It also just kind of lacks. It's like Buyers has, like, the energy of, like, he wants to be Mulder, but, like, he's very content not having the authority that Mulder has and the power that Mulder has. Yeah. But he absolutely wants to be perceived as Mulder is perceived. So he just wears suits all the time. Honestly, more power to him. And then Langley's just like a little freak, right? And he yeah. like he's like a little nerdy boy, and like uh -huh. he leans into that. And then Frohickey is like low key fashion icon. Frohickey like could be a pimp, like on the side. Oh my god! So the lone gunman say some shit. <laughs> this is a good time to remind all of you that we never promised to explain the show <laughs> <laughs> or what happens. So yeah. We're getting to the point in the show where, like, some of the long-term plot's going to get lost. And if you're here to understand, um, I can't help you. I'm sorry. So we cut to the Japanese embassy. Some man kills a Japanese man who gets into a limo. And then the scene ends. Um, and then once the episode was over, going back over my notes, I read this line. And these moments are so funny because even after you've gotten to the end of the episode, you have no idea what the placement of this scene was for. Oh. Like, it's all for the two-parter energy, baby. You know, like the amount of times you have to be watching the show and just pretend you know what happened and just be okay with moving on without yeah. any explanation for who knows how long is kind of fantastic yeah it's true well and it's like 
they do a two-parter in a weird way where they're like, yeah, we're going to do a two-part episode, so we're going to leave absolutely everything unexplained in the first episode. Exactly. And you're like, that's yeah. not the way to do it. You want to leave a little, you want to at least, like, guide us along the journey a little. Totally. Yeah, totally. So we're back with Scully. She's, uh, I think this is one of my favorite looks, moments. The matching lipstick and suit is, like, she looks so good. Um, this is one of my favorite timestamps, like just of, like in the history of me <laughs> and Scully was this moment. She's in a beautiful wine colored skirt suit that has big black buttons and I think a black um, velvet collar, which is your favorite, my favorite. Um, and then I remembered I was like just wasn't really looking at her feet but then i went back and her shoes are also her shoes also match her suit do they really yes wow iconic and it just it's like one of those looks that it's like you know like when people say like their head over heels it's like yeah like that's a great little phrase but it's like no like i literally ate shit when i saw this look like that's how head over heels i went head first into the ground Whenever I see Dana Scully on screen, I'm just like, the need to be a housewife really kicks in. And so it's like, whenever I see her in a look, I always just imagine how she would look coming home, like, while I'm in my little apron. <laughs> and like, this is top tier. This is one of <laughs> <laughs> Your little apron. The walking through the door vibes of this outfit is <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> the energy is like... I'm I'm in the kitchen, right? Where I belong. <laughs> Apparently Emily is no longer a feminist. <laughs> I'm joking, this is your right. And it's okay when it's right. You said it. It's okay when it's too when it's when it's a queer couple. I don't know if I should say this on the podcast or not because maybe it's really controversial. But I think that no one should be allowed to get married but gay people. <laughs> I think that that is unironically your best take ever well hear me out like i don't like, i don't really mean that i'm not i'm not out <laughs> to take anyone's rights right like get married if you want that's whatever but like marriage is founded in like the ownership of women like that's the origin of it it used to be like a proprietal trade we've talked about this and so like because that was it's like that's its origin and like that's how like that the institution was founded i feel like with men and women you can't break from that but if you're breaking from the heteronormative nature of that or like the gender binary or anything in that realm then you're already out of that like what the initial standard was so then it's it's not going to be like like a marriage between two women isn't going to be based on ownership there's none of that but like a marriage between a man unless and a woman, hmm? unless it's based on mutual ownership which is kind of hot. That is kind of hot. But you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not going to have that same, like, basis. You're a genius. I know. But, like, with a man I, and a woman, I don't know that you can break from that. Or at least I don't know that I can. So I'm not getting married is what is my point here. Well, it's, like, the same thing of, like, even couples, heterosexual couples who think that they evenly distribute domestic work it's actually still like 60 40 or like 80 20 i know it might have been so it's like even when you think that you are um uh challenging and 
breaking down these binaries and these gender roles or gendered roles, like even the couple who thinks that they are the poster child of equality and of breaking those things down, like they're not as much as they think they are. And I think that it's the same thing with like a more um, um, general, like systemic conversation as well, which is just that it's like, how significantly can you challenge social norms when it's the system that is in place that's holding it all together? Exactly. That is the issue. So it's like you can, like, I can marry a man, but, like, I'm still going to be playing into that system that feeds and thrives off of the oppression and ownership of women. So why would – I can have a long-term partnership and not play into that institution, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyways, let me paint this picture for you quickly. Sorry, my, my point was is that Emily can be a housewife. No. <laughs> the picture is like, okay, you know, in like everything about everything, every form of media about like the 1950s, you have the, I'm thinking like New York City, right? I'm thinking Mad Men. Yes. Okay, this is about Mad Men. <laughs> like the man comes home from his big city job. He goes home to the suburbs, right? He pulls in his driveway in his Cadillac, right? Mm-hmm. He walks inside and he's got a suit on and his wife is in the kitchen. She's got her little apron on, her little skirt on. She turns around and she's this beautiful meal that she's just slaved over all day for her husband. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the children are in bed. They've been bathed and they're like tucked away. The house is clean. Dana Scully brings out these feelings in me, okay? <laughs> you just want to worship her. Anyways, another fun thing about this scene is that Jillian almost trips, which makes me <laughs> love it even more. Um, and then there's one of my favorite stills ever um, when she decides to take a little, I'm going to have a little model main character moment. And she looks out <laughs> over the front lawn of this house. Um, anyways. She, oh, sorry. Yeah, I forgot to say where she goes. She goes to Betsy Hagopian's house, and uh, Betsy's not there. That's why she's having a main character moment. But Michelle Pfeiffer's double is. Yeah, literally. Doesn't she look so much like Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah, she does. Um, but yeah, so there are women at her house. Um, they recognize Scully, and she, they keep saying she's one of them. Scully goes into the house. She's tell she's very confused. She tells them that she's there conducting an investigation into the murder of Steven Zinzer, um, who was a member of their UFO chapter thing. Um, and then like they just start asking her all of these unprovoked questions and very personal questions. And they ask her if she had an unexplained event in her life the year before where she was missing for a period of time that can't be accounted for. Meanwhile, Michelle Pfeiffer's lookalike calls someone and she tells them to bring everyone to Betsy's. Um, Jillian's acting in this moment is incredible because of how she shifts from when she's outside the door to when she goes inside the house. Yeah, And it's such a clear and explicit moment of recognition um, that... I think it would be interesting to see if you put the still of her outside the door together with a still um, after she feels like she might know what these women are talking about. It's like 
the difference is so striking in her facial expressions. Yeah, I would love to see those next to each other. Um, what I think is ironic about like this this whole scene, like even going forward, is that like this is truly the farthest thing from science fiction you could possibly write. Yep, like it's it's one of those un- again like unintentionally really palpable scenes where like this group of women have all come together because of something traumatic that's happened to them at the hand in, of men in power and no one fucking believes them so like they only have each other um and it's like they write this like it's the most outlandish thing that could happen like oh my god what a conspiracy these women have come together as their su- only support system because nobody believes them and then scully can't remember and i'm like You're, this is basic trauma it's basic yeah. and- well and i think the part that i found so funny was when they all hold up the the chips that they took out of their neck and it's like you do realize that like that happens there just might not be a tangible remnant of that trauma exactly you know and it was funny to see like the writers and the director like pan around to all these women being like this is what they took out of me like this was in me it's like like when i get together with like my female friends and we talk inevitably about like the harassments and violations and violences that we've all experienced um i I don't have something to pull out of my pocket to be like oh my god you have that too like no it's just in the experience you don't need something tangible to make it a valid trauma but frequently cis men seem to think that like, I, I know we've talked about this before a little bit but yeah. like in relationships that i've had it's like it pain is sometimes hard for um the cis men in my life to understand if they can't see it yeah like if it's not something with like a visible tangible um like consequence or or wound or aftermath and so it's like when they do, so it's just like what you said, like when they pan around and they're all holding this fucking little vial, it's like, you don't, I don't, I don't need that to know that this was horrible. Yeah, exactly. And it's, also, it's almost like the men who wrote this show very clearly subscribe to that lack of awareness because in holding that belief, they truly thought that Scully would be able to, if she took this chip out of her neck, just move on without any trauma. Yeah, like, it, it took it's, having to be, see these women to realize that something was wrong when, like... Exactly. Like, it took her seeing the chip. It took her force... It took the reintroduction of this chip into her life for her to be like, oh, my God, that's right. I went through something so traumatizing. It's so true. And it's, like, the fact that, like, the lasting effect ends up ultimately being cancer. And it's, like, yeah, that's... It's, like, you have the pain that these kind of traumas cause is cancerous to the body. You don't need literal cancer for it to have that kind of damaging lasting effect. It's it's so ridiculous. You don't need to pile all these other traumas on for this to be like painful for her. It already is. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. Okay. So during this scene, we kind of flash back and forth between Scully with all these women and then Mulder at the Coast Guard headquarters. He wants some information about a boat. Doesn't matter. I just like anything to say about his appearance here. I just liked watching <laughs> his giant body move. 
like it was like the the difference between me watching that scene with Scully and being like, oh my god, like Jillian playing fighting back repressed memories and like it coming up nonetheless. Like it's her acting is brilliant. Oh my god! And then I was like, wow, he's massive, <laughs> and he has a five o'clock shadow. So I keep winning. I love that for you. <laughs> yeah, Mulder's five o'clock shadow is really like the testament to like him co-opting his sister's trauma more deeply the darker the five o'clock shadow is the more he's co-opting female trauma literally like (laughs) it is the physical manifestation of how the trauma that women have gone through has impacted him how severely it has impacted him like you guys he's really going through it he hasn't shaved he hasn't had time (laughs) (laughs) And then he fucking belly flops. I don't know if you're there yet. <laughs> I have the almost, almost, almost. I have the, the still up. <laughs> um, so we're back at we're back to Scully at Betsy's house after that scene of Mulder looking massive. Um, there are all these women there now. Like we said, um, the audience along with Scully find out that um they've. All the women there have also been abducted. Scully says that she's not ready to discuss what happened to her. And that should have been the end of the conversation. Yeah. But this was written by men who have no concept of boundaries or <laughs> consent. So yes. uh, it continues. And then when I was watching this, um, CV and I briefly talked about, like, when I said what's so unsettling about this scene is that like this is a trauma that she needs to face on her own on her own time very much so should have gotten to on her own so at least when melissa was was trying you know her dead sister that was killed yeah uh senselessly and then there was no justice you know her Mm -hmm. or mention of it yeah yeah um at least when Melissa talked to Scully about this and what had happened to her, she gives her the choice to pursue um, a, a um, avenue of healing or to at least broach some form of healing. Um, and she doesn't, she doesn't like put her in a corner and say like, you know, you have to remember this because if you don't it's going to harm you it's like you don't that's not for you to decide yeah bestie like even even the the gravest consequence of her abduction is is not for you to decide when she has to come to terms with that well and it's just stupid because like these women who have experienced the same trauma would have that kind of sensitivity exactly that's exactly so we're back at the Coast Guard. Mulder skedaddles and decides to take a jog around the shipyard. He finds a ship he's looking for and he jumps onto it. And as he's breaking in, all these armed men pull up outside and they board the ship. But of course, Mulder, very sneakily, hides in a lifeboat and then he belly flops into the water. That's my man. That's my good boy. We're... <laughs> Okay, so yeah, we're back with Scully. Um, All the women are still trying to get her to remember what happened to her. We see her having flashbacks to her abduction periodically. One woman shows her the mark on the back of her neck. 
and says that they all have one and that it's from an implant. She really looks like she's about to throw up. An implant? An implant. Scully absolutely looks like she's about to throw up. She's very visibly triggered by this because it was clearly something she was trying to forget and move on from, hoping that it was nothing. And now all of this is coming back to her in a space and a time when she was not prepared to face it. Mm -hmm. So Scully wants to leave, but the women decide to take her to the Department of Oncology at a hospital. They tell her that Betsy is at an advanced stage of an undiagnosed cancer and that they think it's a result of her abduction experiences. So Scully's like, that's horrible. And then these women just tell her that they're all going to die from cancer, that like, (laughs) this is their fate, that Betsy's fate is their fate. And the scene is so (laughs) annoying because I know that this is a stereotype. I know that this probably will come off as a stereotype. I know it's what we talked about in the beginning of this episode, but it's like these women are made to be robotic around Scully and deliver this very traumatizing and very um, damaging news to Scully as if they have no literal personal experience as to how receiving that news would feel. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and like so much of this is so overwhelming for Scully yeah. and it, and then it's just frustrating because they don't give, because there's not even the acknowledgement that this is overwhelming. She doesn't have the space for it to be. So it just seems, so then it sets up that unrealistic standard. Like this is something that I talked about a lot in my thesis is like, it sets up this unrealistic standard for women because it's like, yes, this was the first time a woman like Scully was on television for a lot of people watching. And it was like, oh my God, look at this representation. But it's also the representation of like that hyper strong woman that doesn't actually have to process or deal with anything. And so it's yep. like, oh shit. Like, so if, if a woman who's dealt with trauma finds herself in a similar situation where somebody's probing her and not like giving her the space to, to process and not respecting those boundaries and is, is pushing her, her memories too far and she has a fucking mental breakdown over it, she's going to feel like she's so weak. And like, there's something wrong with her because this is the kind of representation that gets perpetuated. Exactly. So it's like, it's like, yeah, representation is important, but you need to have the right kind of representation. 100%. And of all spaces, like I talk a little bit about this later, but it's like of all spaces, this should be the space where she feels comfortable doing that or not even where she feels comfortable doing that, but where she's allotted the space to do that. Yep. Like, not just because it's a group of women, even, because it's a group of women who have gone through exactly what she has gone through, who are trying to come to terms with the exact same trauma. But the irony of this scene is that, or I guess the frustrating thing about this scene is that these women telling her that she is going to die from cancer, from her abduction, is that they've clearly, if you want to interpret it this way, come to terms with their trauma. And they've had the time to get some hold of their fate. Mm -hmm. Um, Scully isn't afforded that. And she just gets trauma dumped while simultaneously (laughs) having to cope with the fact that this, that the content of this dump will also happen to her. It's like she's having to hold the space for these women and their trauma while simultaneously having to come to terms real time with the fact that she will experience the exact same thing. I know. And it's so fucked because I know there's like this kind of like 
this demonstration of her trauma makes women watching go like, oh my God, I'll never be as strong as that. Like I'm, there's like, Mm -hmm. I'll never, nobody's as strong as that. That's not a real human, like this kind of processing and like the way that these traumas unfold. That's not a fully, like, that's not a three-dimensional depiction of, of, um, of a person. You know what I mean? Well, I think, yeah. And I think too, like, that's not to say that some people don't respond to trauma like this, but the issue is that they have every single woman in this group responding to trauma in the exact same way. Yeah. So it's like, I think that that's the one thing in, not the one thing, but that's one of the many things that in the most recent season of The Handmaid's Tale, that was basically the um, foundation for this whole season was how these um, women who had previously been in Gilead, who had previously been enslaved, um, and held captive and raped and, and all of that were now coming to terms with life after that mm. with and, and how trauma would manifest and how healing would manifest. That's so interesting. And there's a, um, there's a, a moment where June, the main character, um, this is spoiler alert for The Handmaid's Tale, um, where June gets invited into this support group of other women who have escaped Gilead. And she is, she is unsettled by how rooted the group is in, in trying to forgive mm. the people who have traumatized them and who have harmed them and who have violated them. Right. Because she's fucking furious like she is angry and they explore that really really well um and they completely hold the space for the reality that despite the fact that all these women have gone through similar trauma that they're healing and how they deal with it would manifest in very different ways Mm -hmm. exactly and that's what happens when you have women privy to that kind of trauma on your writing staff or on your production exactly. teams like in involved in the storyboarding and all of that um and that's what this show we i mean that's it's really obvious and we talk about it all the time but like that's what the show is lacking and it happens and this is how it manifests is yeah. like what could be a really powerful moment is actually really damaging in, in the long run in terms of like trauma representation and And like, it's interesting because like, based on our discussion in the beginning, it's like Scully and we've talked about this often, which is that Scully and Mulder often have um, switched traditional gender roles or traditional, traditionally gendered traits, at least where Mulder oftentimes is much more emotional and much more emotionally invested than Scully and how that was, um, that, how that was remarkable at the time because- you never saw that on tv it's almost like in doing that they managed to uphold the (laughs) the toxic traits of of that binary so it's like in making scully unemotional they managed to uphold the concept that emotion and um feelings and we and um and uh vulnerability are signs of weakness well and it's ironic because it's brave if Mulder displays those things right exactly and it, but it's weak if scully does 
And so it's interesting that it's like in order for her to be a feminist character, she couldn't ex- she couldn't display these very traditionally tra- traditional traditionally female traits. Mm-hmm. And in and in her being written like that, she starts to display an anti-feminine or an anti-woman aspect of masculinity yeah it's really weird well and it's like it, it comes down to like fucking everything does it's like it comes down to choice feminism because it's like creating the antithesis of the stereotype of of woman isn't inherently feminist like you, we've exactly. talked about at length before but it's like if you want to write a female character that's very not very emotional and is more like sturdy and logical and intelligent and rational and very like, has a scientific brain like that's just kind of how she works amazing but it can't be a survival mechanism like it needs yeah. to just be naturally how she is and she needs to not be punished for displaying anything otherwise which is exactly where um well, it's, it's just in, it's interesting because it's like if those qualities were in a man that would just be his nature yeah so it's like it's unnatural for her to have them because she's not a man yeah when, and and so she gets written in that way in that her interests in that her skills are unnatural and so that makes her extraordinary but that only exists because we view masculinity and maleness as a neutral, as like exactly. the, the basis player in life. Well, and it's like, they were like, how do we write a powerful woman? You write her like a man. Exactly. And it's like, a woman can be powerful in, in the fact that she's not like a man. And, the, and, exactly. like, and this obviously goes into, like, this show falls into the gender binary and it has no exploration of anything outside of that. So that's how this conversation unfolds. Um, but it's like... Well, it's again, wow, how weird that this fall, fell into kind of our beginning discussion really well. But it's yeah. like, I, we were talking about this earlier, which is just that, like, Marilyn Fry, who's a theorist, talks about how... Um, unless we are challenging the norms and that means on on both sides yeah so traditionally female traits and traditionally male traits um then we are inherently trying to achieve it so and and that by nature is an engagement in maintaining Mm. those those norms and those binaries so it's like making scully a man didn't do anything to challenge these binaries. It simply made her uphold and, and, and achieve the masculine idea ideal. Yeah. And it's like, there's going to be some representation that's happening because of course there's going to be women watching that are like, Hey, I'm like that. Oh my God, I'm not insane, but it's not being, portrayed with the best interest of those women in mind exactly like it's not it's it's not with the intention of being like yeah like it's okay to be like this and be in like whatever like it's not with that it's just to create it's just to make her taken seriously in the only way that these writers thought that she could be taken seriously is by taking away any evidence of her femininity or sex appeal or things like that which is not feminist yep anyways sorry wow this is just one of those it's one of those like really small things where it's like this moment should be traumatizing and because you don't get to see that it's indicative of so many other issues truly 
Anyway, Mulder finally emerges from the water <laughs> with major shrinkage. I, I'm sure of it. Yeah, but I don't care because his jaw looks so good. That's very fair. You know, little it's the little things. No pun intended. Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't have the hiccups. You don't have to scare me. Emily has scared. This is, I don't know if I've, I don't think I've told this story before. I don't know. But I, sometimes when I get the hiccups, Emily will um, flat out lie to me about something horrendous to to scare the hiccups out. About her, about your favorite people. About my favorite people. And so she's done that by saying that this guy I think is hot being like, I think his dick is really small. Like, I think it's just like, he does not, he can't please anybody he's with. And I was like, what? Like half an inch. I was like, why are you saying that? She goes, no, I just like get that vibe. Like it just cannot. And I was like, stop. Like, what is wrong with you? And then she was like, are your hiccups gone? And they were, and it blew my (laughs) fucking mind. But I think about it every day. Because I got that because one time I had the hiccups and my sister said, brilliantly she turned into Meryl Streep I swear to god (laughs) she out of nowhere started to tell me she freaked out and she told me that there was a spider in my hair and then my hiccups were gone yeah but you like I I understand I've done that to people because it like it, it jolts a physical reaction you really went for like the mental turmoil with me I know I did I'm so sorry no it worked thank you that's also not to say that size matters, but it was this was an instance where it was important to me, okay? I think we're allowed. Mulder emerges from the water. He goes for another jog. He finds a warehouse that's being guarded, but he manages to like boot scoot and boogie his way to get closer. <laughs> and he looks inside and he sees uh, a giant UFO and there's a bunch of men in hazmat suits working on it. Anyways, he's soaking wet. That's what's important. Me too. (laughs) So (laughs) he goes back to his apartment. He finds that his door is unlocked and all of his electricity is out. Um, And it's because Skinner is sitting ominously in the dark in the corner of his apartment. Waiting for him. Erotic. He tells Mulder that Sakurai was found dead this morning. This morning that morning because of the briefcase that was missing um skinner obviously knows that Mulder has it Mulder tells him it's with scully in the trunk of her rental car so right before skinner leaves he tells Mulder that he's not helping him or protecting him anymore so Mulder calls his other daddy senator matheson and he tells him senator the senator tells Mulder when he goes to see him that he should hand over the satellite photographs. This whole scene is so whiny for Mulder. Essentially, the senator tells him about the highly classified project, the autopsy of the alien, but he says that he can't say anything more apart from the fact that he um, knows the names of the scientists who were murdered in that video. Mm -hmm. I have a lot to say about this scene because and it's so funny because if Mulder Mulder if David had acted it better I don't know that it would have been as striking Mm. but he acts it as if this is 
him facing the consequences of his own actions are a major inconvenience for him. And Mulder basically says to this senator that he doesn't have the space to face the consequences of his actions right now because <laughs> becoming involved in a murder investigation is not a good time for him. It's not a good time for him to become involved in a murder investigation right now. And it just made me think about this dichotomy between him and Scully and where they are right now and the paralleling of these journeys um, that we're seeing and just how it's a perfect example of the way that women face life and the way that men face life in terms of like um, our access to time and our access to control over um, our bodies moving through time. Mm -hmm. And Mulder is able to say, yeah, being entangled in a murder investigation because I withheld evidence and facing the consequence of that isn't really going to work for me right now. And his ability to circumvent that while Scully has just been told that because of the bodily trauma she experienced, that she has a literal deadline or limit to her time. And it was just, it's just very indicative, at least to me in watching this, that of, of the object subject binary mm -hmm. where life happens to Scully, it seems where life happens to women, whereas Mulder gets to decide how his life will happen and how it will proceed and settle in this subject role mm -hmm. very comfortably. Um, and then I, we were talking about it and it's just very interesting that reproductive trauma and reproductive autonomy is tied into all of this because it is true that the control over one's reproductive and bodily choices is the foundation to liberation. Mm -hmm. um, and just the difference between how Scully's trauma to her, among other aspects, like her reproductive functions and her ability to choose her fate or even just delay it, renders her completely helpless. And it puts a tangible limit on her time. Yeah. Whereas with Mulder, he's able to literally delay his fate because of the men he knows, because he's a man, because he has control over his own body, over his own autonomy, over his own choices. Mm -hmm. And it's like the fact that Mulder has so much bodily autonomy that he can delay mm -hmm. implicating himself in a murder investigation that he is absolutely a part of yeah. and has contributed to. While Scully doesn't even have the autonomy to decide when to or how to address her trauma. And in fact, has been given a deadline for whatever bodily autonomy she now has left. Yep. And the line that Senator that the Senator says to Mulder, um, when, when he says, a good chess player knows which pieces to sacrifice and when. Yes, but first you have to have the pieces. That's such a good point. Oh my God. Like, yeah. You have to have access to the pieces. That is a privilege. Exactly. It's like even when Mulder's not has not in control, he has more control than Scully at her most autonomous. Exactly. And like that part always gets left out of this conversation. Like even with um like with race and with political discussions with the whole like bootstraps argument. Mm. Pulling yourself up by your yes. own bootstraps. What happens if you don't even have boots? 
Well, yeah, literally. Like what happens? What happens when you don't have access to the pieces you need to make choices with? Exactly. And how that wow. will impact your future? Yeah. And like, it's just bullshit. It's like Mulder, who has men protecting him, despite the fact that he's done something illegal, and Scully who doesn't have a support network in these women, despite the fact that she's been traumatized in the same way that they have. It's just, it's bullshit. So while Mulder has chosen to delay turning himself in, Scully has just been given a fatal cancer diagnosis. So while his time has been extended, her time has been shortened and his fate is able to be chosen while hers has just been thrust upon her without her consent. Mm Mm-hmm. It, it, that's a brilliant point. Wild, like it's it wild. It's wild how unconscious all of this is. Absolutely, like I think that's what really gets me Absolutely. about this. Is like it's yeah. it's wild about how just like the simple lack of awareness of your predisposition to prejudice these gender roles um, affects so many things long term. Yep. And how lack of representation on the writing staff makes it so easy to, to perpetuate these things. Absolutely. It's just wild. It's entitlement to time and it's entitlement to authority in your choices in life. Yeah. And like you said, the fact that it's unconscious makes it even more unsettling and it's like i honestly at this point i can't even be mad at the writer specifically because i'm like they they're just existing like yes they should obviously everybody needs to be making the effort to unlearn all of these um patriarchal uh standards and practices and all of those things um but like this is it's just so deeply ingrained i'm like yeah of course it of course it's written like this of course these are the things that are perpetuated yeah like well, it's even like, but it's even like with when you and I were watching that, we were watching an L Word reunion <laughs> in 2017 with all the actors and then the writer. And there's a trans character on the show in the original run. Yeah. And the writer and creator was talking about how um, because of the women on the writing staff who had had partners who had transitioned after they had broken up she felt like she needed to represent that experience and stevie you said something so like simplistic but so brilliant which is just that it's like that is not the story that you need to be accessing in order to tell that story yeah it was like she talked about how she was yeah writers on my staff had had partners that had transitioned like you said and they and they they talked about how hard that was for them and i was like that doesn't give you insight to write nobody wants yeah you don't want to hear about how hard it was for the people in proxy you want to write about the person experiencing the thing that you're writing about exactly representation baby anyway we cut to molder with glasses and like okay professor daddy what are your office hours i am on my way (laughs) do you think scully ever made that joke Call him Professor Daddy? No. <laughs> no, no. No, made an office hours joke. <laughs> I hope so. I feel like he made one with her. When she was a professor? Yeah. I know he wasn't around then, but we can pretend. Let's pretend he was. <laughs> let's, pre- let's pretend on the run she got like a, a gig as an adjunct professor. And, Perfect. And he was like, can I come to your office hours today? 
Why does David do what does David do that in? What? He does something where he like Oh my god, he does it to fucking Jillian. Oh my god. It's when David and Jillian did that question thing when she's in the red blouse. Okay. And he has to leave, right? Yeah. So he leaves and it's just Chris and Jillian. And David goes up to the mic before he leaves and he goes, Jillian, who is your who is your the favorite actor you ever worked with? Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Does she know that it's him or does she not think yes. it is? Yes. Oh. Yeah, she knows that it's him. That's funny. I've not seen that. Yeah. And she goes, there was this one guy in the 90s. He used to be really cute. <laughs> and all I can remember about him is, is this red Speedo. Good for her. She's obsessed. I um, mean... I- Honestly, I can't blame her for that never leaving her mind. <laughs> it's never left mine. <laughs> well, and it's also like it she was such, about it all the time. It was such a shock. Like we're talking about this show and how this woman isn't even able to process her trauma. And like and then here we have full frontal nudity. Show we have the image of this man, the full outline of this man's dick. Like wh- how do those two things? How are those two things existing in the same space? So Scully comes into the office where Mulder's wearing these glasses and she tells him that she spoke with the women of MUFON and that Betsy Hagopian, along with all the women, are dying because of the chip that they, including Scully, had implanted in, in their necks. This part is equally frustrating because equally in equal parts frustrating and confusing because Mulder tells her that she shouldn't worry until they find out what it is, despite the fact that Scully is so scared and so nervous. But it's like, you know, you know what it is. These women told you what it is. Yeah. Scully has just told him that the exact same chip that was implanted in her neck was also implanted in the necks of these women who are dying, including one who is actually currently fatally ill, medically backed by her records showing no improvement to any cancer treatment. And this man has the audacity to say that their word isn't enough to cause Scully to worry. Yeah. Well, it's like, well, it's like, I, I have really mixed feelings about this scene and I I don't want to sound like I'm defending Mulder here, but it's like, he's, he's completely incapable of accepting that this is becoming her journey and not his, but it's like, and so I think that in turn leads him to invalidate her. But I think the root of that feeling is that he doesn't want something to happen to her. Yes, like he's absolutely. like, no, this needs to be my journey because then you're going to get hurt or then you're, something's going to happen to you like something happened to Samantha. And it's like, Fully. I understand that fear, but then in turn, he completely invalidates her. Um, that's, that's the issue is that it's like, because it's very evident that you can see that he's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to acknowledge that something bad is going to happen to you. So it's like, I don't even. So let's just pretend nothing. So I don't want to admit it. Like he can't step out of himself. He can't like, cause if, if he views her as an extension of himself. Exactly. And it's like any um, emotionally mature adult would be able to hold the space in, in himself and in, um, and, and for his partner where he recognizes that, he's having some hesitancy in accepting the fact that 
or in understanding the fact that he doesn't want to think that she might be in danger or that she might be in pain or that something bad might happen while also recognizing how she feels yeah. and saying that this is absolutely a valid feeling for you to be worried, which is exactly what you just said. But there's like no, there's no, he's just a dummy because he can't <laughs> hold he can't hold two differing emotions at the same time it's just a lack of emotional maturity and a lack of complex writing exactly in this interaction and it's just confusing because then like later he's he's very like con- validating for her and he like whispers about the her that like he like he talks about the beings that she confided in him about moving past her and that tunnel of medical files that she's seen and he's like you've you've told me these things like why can't you and like and that seems very much like he's like yes I've listened I realize that this is hard but it's like how can he be doing that and then also being like yeah I don't really know where you've been and I don't really care that's the thing that's so confusing it's inconsistent and I, and I do think that a little I think that the intention of that was to be rooted in like he is so terrified um to even consider the fact that she something bad might happen to her that he's just like completely shutting it off yeah but it's like but and 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 as revealing as that is to how much he cares about her it's like what about her yeah you know it's, exactly. it's almost like he exists in this vacuum and she's and she is an ornament of of well, his uh, she's an ornament for him and she's also simply reactionary for him yeah well and i also think that it begs the question of like does he actually not want anything to happen to her because he cares about her or does he not want anything to happen to her because he doesn't want to experience the loss of losing her do you know what i mean Uh oh and I think a lot of men can ask themselves that question when confronted with the idea of the women in their life experiencing trauma. That is such a great point. Like, are you actually upset about the person you love experiencing pain? Or do you feel like something of yours has been violated? Like, you know? Yeah. <gasps> <laughs> Holy shit. You're so smart. No. Yeah. No, that comes that like you bring that. This is why I love having conversations like that with you because then you say things that blow my mind and make me think about things I haven't thought about before. So then I say something and you're like, whoa. And then it's just like a, a spiraling of, of new thoughts. And I love that. Yeah. That's my favorite thing. I love you. I love you. So Mulder has some photographs on his desk. Um, Scully picks them up. He tells her that it's of Japanese medical officers that was taken during World War II. Scully says that she recognizes one of the men, but Mulder is very dismissive and tells her that he's been dead since 1965. It's very clear that Scully's like trying to come to terms with something, trying to figure something out, and it's very it's very difficult for her. And Mulder just keeps on talking <laughs> and he keeps on saying things that are causing her more pain visibly. Um and it's kind of all topped off when he says that this man tested on human subjects. And this is what I want to talk about earlier, but it's just ironic that Scully is being forced to come to understand the extent of her trauma and the men who abducted her through Mulder and through other women. Because those are the two people or two groups of people or two whatever 
that she's supposed to trust the most. Yeah. And then Mulder being the one person who's supposed to care about her the most. Yep. That's a great point. This whole part was very confusing because I don't understand. Either Mulder believes Scully was abducted and he's aware of and appreciates what likely could have been done to her, or he doesn't believe she was abducted and doesn't believe what his entire life's mission has been set to expose. Mm. So like this whole part is like very confusing and it's like within a minute he becomes a different person this whole scene of scully looking at these pictures of innocent people who were tested on while simultaneously trying to remember the trauma that she experienced when she was abducted it's jillian acts this part out really well because it's very difficult to even watch yeah. her go through um molder tells her four of the doctors in the photo were murdered that they were the same ones on the tape that he showed her and that they were murdered possibly by the u.s government for continuing the work of nazis not just or continuing the work of nazis now just trying to create an alien human hybrid scully's obviously in denial in this conversation which makes Mulder say why do you refuse to believe after all you've seen and it's maybe because while while Mulder is able to detach from this journey, um, he just chooses not to. Yeah. Scully doesn't have that luxury anymore. Yeah. Like believing has way more implications for her than it does for him. Yeah. 100%. Believing means coming to terms with so much more than it does. Like he can be like, yeah, this is real. Isn't this crazy? And she's like, this is real. And now my life's ruined. 100%. And so they go back and forth and Mulder says in disbelief, you think believing is easy. Yes. Yes. For him. It is. is. For you. (laughs) And the thing that's frustrating is that she's not saying believing is easy, period. She's saying choosing to believe first is easy. Yes. She's saying choosing to believe first instead of the other way around, which is needing proof, doing the work, looking for the evidence first then believing the opposite the or the the former is hard is easier than the latter that's what she's saying yeah like so Mulder shows scully the facts of a train car that was carrying a test subject it's the one that they used to conduct the autopsy in the tape Mm -hmm. he says that he got it from someone who needs proof like her but who's also willing to believe Maybe, and it's just it, it's just exactly what you said, which is like maybe she's not willing to believe because that would mean also recognizing a lot of trauma that she's been subjected to without any justice and without a whole lot of answers. Yeah. So Scully takes her chip in the next scene to Agent Pendrel, our main man. Bestie Pendrel. Bestie Pendrel. Do you identify with, with Pendrel? He's so in love with her. Yes, it's I do. so cute. I do, but also the thing that struck me about this scene is like he's trying to flirt with her, and it's like this is the epitome of so many experiences I've had as a woman, which is like Scully's trying to find out if she's dying or not, and this man is literally trying to flirt with her. 
Christ. Like that, like, Jesus Christ. you know what I mean? Yes. He's like, like, oh my God, you look so sexy when you're asking about this chip. And she's like, I wonder if I'm going to die soon. She's like, so like, if that was inside of me, like, is that like toxic to my entire body? And he's like, you want to get dinner sometime? <laughs> It's like, it's that like scene, oh my god, you're so sexy the way you ask questions. It's like that scene in Killing Eve when when Eve has like has just nearly died and she left what's his name that one guy to die, and she sees that guy come into the hotel and she pretends to be the receptionist at the hotel, and he and he asked her, her out. out. Yes, it's like that, which is why I love that scene in Killing Eve. Um, but so yes and no, yes, because he's fully in love with her and it's so pure. Um, but at the same time, this whole thing is so sad because it's like, he's so not her type and it's just sad because he's so in love with her. He's so head over heels for her from the beginning. It's so sweet. Well, it's just like, that's how she should be treated. So I just like watching. 100%. Let's leave it there. Anyways. He's telling her that it's man-made, it's used in video games, it's also been used to help disabled people operate things using brainwaves. She's just like, okay, whatever. So man-made is the big thing about that. Yeah. Mulder goes to West Virginia. He finds the train car. Leather jacket just for me. True. There are some Japanese men loading something into a full hazmat, in, in a full hazmat suit from a van to a train car. Mulder sees it through his little binoculars. Back at the FBI, Scully is watching the autopsy footage again, and she's trying to see the face of the doctor she recognized. And while she, when she gets a good look at, in the tape, we see a flashback to when she was abducted, and sure enough, he was the one. He was one of the men involved in her abduction. The way that she watches this tape is the way that you watch um, bet sex scenes in the L word. <laughs> Why would you expose me like that? How beautiful, though, to watch her do the same thing that you do. You hate me. I'll cut it out. No, I love you. I adore you. I'll cut that out. I'm just joking. You know what? No. You're going to leave it in because I fully embrace that. Because You, you know should. What? You should not be ashamed of doing that. That was not to shame you. After hearing Jennifer Beals talk about this, her involvement in this show... She has the kindest heart ever and truly was like, she went into the L word being like, I am going to make this the most representative and beautiful thing every queer woman has ever seen on television. And you know what? I appreciate her for that. And you know what? I appreciate the effort that she put into it because let me tell you, she put a lot of effort into this character. Okay. Yeah. Puts her whole pussy into those <laughs> She died. She does. And it's beautiful. And so really, I would be doing her a disservice and would actually, all of her effort would go to waste if I didn't engage. Look in at every moment. That I do. It's beautiful. So the random man who killed someone earlier. In oh, Luma, yeah. Yeah. He kills another person in the bathroom of this Canadian railroad station where the car thing is supposedly stopping. Mulder gets there, but the train already left. Scully goes home. Apartment number five. <laughs> Sloppy Toppy's there. 
it's just really funny to imagine him waiting there like how long was he standing there for i know but also Uh, like i thought for a second that they were at Mulder's house and then when it ran i realized they were at her apartment like what a massive violation (laughs) like way more than the writers think that's horrifying yep yeah it was just like kind of the cherry on top of this turd cake for sure um he tells scully that Mulder's in danger and that she can't let him get on the train so she calls Mulder and tells him that and but she won't tell him who told her that um and uh she can't convince him so he jumps on the train and like a little dummy he drops his phone and uh the episode ends Scully yelling, don't get on the train, and Mulder jumping onto the train. That's just that, that's all you need to know about this show. Truly. Do you want to do Jillian's Corner? Yes. Do you want to sing? Yes. Okay. Jillian's Corner. 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 For Jillian's Corner, because um, with just the topics of discussion this episode and with the recent release of the sex education date, what is it, September 19th? 17th? 17th? 16th? I don't know. Mid-September. Mid-September, Sex Education Season 3 is coming out. We thought that we would talk about what a good job that show does um, in displaying nuanced male friendship. And healthy male friendship and healthy yeah. expressions of masculinity. Yes. Big time. It's so interesting because um, in the first season, my mom watched it. And the part at the end when Eric and Otis dance together, yeah, she was like, she couldn't wrap her head around like why students weren't making fun of Otis. And, oh, my God. That's yeah. so interesting. And I was like, because it's like, even though that very well may have happened in real life, like Otis probably would have been made fun of in real life. That's not the purpose of this show. Yeah. Like Like the purpose of this show is to show healthy male friendships. Well, it's that thing that we talk about with the X-Files all the time where it's like, just because it's realistic doesn't mean you should necessarily show it. Exactly. Unless you're going to transform it in some way, which I think by not showing him get made fun of for that, they do transform it. Absolutely. 100%. Because that's the thing. It's like the only reason that things become social norms and the only way things become systemic and institutionalized is when they're taken when when things like this are taken for granted when when norms are taken for granted when they're expected then they become like shared assumptions and that's why they're able to exist Mm -hmm. and so it's like simply showing something that goes against the social norm is working and changing that shared assumption yeah because then that just becomes how it is Mm mm-hmm when I watched this with my mom, um, she like was most heartbroken by Adam's story mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just like you can see that they do a really good job showing the the dichotomy between Adam's 
immense, all-consuming self-loathing because Mm -hmm. of toxic masculinity and the euphoria that Eric experiences in his his self-expression. Not saying that Eric doesn't deal with anything and that there's not consequences to that euphoria because it's a realistic show that shows that like there are, there's nuanced issues. Um, Mm -hmm. But like in, on a, on a emotional level, um, like that dichotomy is really palpable. Um, and then also, like I, the last time I watched it through, um, there's that scene. I don't know what episode it is. Is it season or is it? I don't know what season it is. It might be season two. But it's, it's when I think it's season two. It's when Eric and Otis and um, Otis's dad go camping, and um, they, Eric and Otis have like a heart to heart in the hotel on their beds in their fluffy robes, and it is one of the most beautiful scenes I think I've ever watched. Like it makes me cry to watch it, just seeing two boys be able to have emotions and have an intimate friendship and relationship and and have open honest communication without that kind of shame that comes from that toxic masculinity and i think like that representation is so crucial like that's what you need you don't need to show them being made fun of for that like like your mom was wondering even though it is realistic like i think that's how you transform it yeah I just reiterated a lot of what you said, but no, but that, but that is true. And I think it's like, it was just, it was so refreshing and so shocking in the best way to see two um, young men like engage in an expression of like care and like interest for each other's well being. And, and have like a physically intimate relationship. Like yeah. they hug and are and are like touchy and and there's no like sense of like oh whoa this is want to be viewed as gay like there's not that's not there and i think too like that comes from a security in otis that was entirely from gene oh yeah big time um just as much as the struggles that adam goes through are primarily from his father yeah that's um, really true. And yeah, I, I love that scene and the scene in the first season when they're dancing. It's like, it's just, it was just so. It gives me goosebumps just to think about it. We, we, it's just, it's really, really beautiful to see like humans just care about each other. And I think that there's something heartwarming about it, the, the topics that that show touches on um, being so intimate and so like revealing and so beautiful in in young people Mm -hmm. you know so i think that there's a little bit of that as well but like the fact that it was two boys acting the way that they were acting completely unashamedly what it's it's just it was so it was beautiful yeah it's so beautiful and like even like just the way that they because i love that otis is a flawed character and he has issues and he's a pain in the fucking ass sometimes but like this form this manifestation of toxic masculinity isn't one of his issues like, not at all yeah like he is so down to sit at home with his mom and watch rom-coms with her and like there's no like oh mom like oh my god like don't tell anybody i'm doing like there's no it's just how it is like it being portrayed that normally i think is incredible and also this show really made me realize that like when i was young i was like 
I hate anything that's about boys. Like, I hate mm. all stories. I hated Harry Potter because I didn't want to read about Harry. Like, I had no interest in anything that was about, I was like, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to hear about it. And now that I'm older, I'm realizing that it's not that I had an aversion to seeing things that are about men. It's that I had an aversion to the type of things I was seeing about men. Because this totally. is like, makes me so excited to see how Eric and Adam are going to develop, how Otis and Eric's friendship are going to, like, I'm so invested in them emotionally. Um, and I think it's just because of the way that it's being portrayed. Oh my God, it is 100%. And I think just to like tie it into our beginning discussion, it's just because the reason that that is the way that Otis is, is because his identity isn't, his concept of masculinity and his identity for himself isn't tied to any, um, any anti-feminine traits. Yeah. Like his, his personality is not anti-woman in any capacity. Yeah. Um, and so he was able to craft, because of the way that he was raised, um, craft an identity that exists outside of those of those constraints. And that's that's nice to it, see. That's beautiful. And I think that's why shows like this are really important. So if you haven't watched Sex Ed, go watch Sex Ed. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's on Netflix. Yeah, and hopefully that didn't spoil too much. I don't know. No, no, I don't think so. But yeah, that's it. That's, That's the episode. Say. That's the episode. Thank you for listening. We love you. Um, abolish the patriarchy. <laughs> be aware of shrinkage. And someone buy me a little apron so I can be Dana Scully's housewife. <laughs> Somebody send Emily an apron, please. We'll see you next time on the sex. The sex files. Okay, bye. Goodbye. I can put your hair in rollers too. I mean, yeah, if she wants. Yeah.